So this post uh, post Pesach blues. <laughs> my main my main uh, challenge is getting off the weight that I put on with all the matzah and getting back into the routine, which is as I get older, harder and harder. So I want to share with you something. Parsha Shmini. It's the beginning of Hamishi. The Ace Seir Chachatos Darosh Darash Moshe. And I just want to look at that today. Just those two words. <laughs> Redundant. Double words. Now, let's look at the Psukim before and after. The Et Seir Chachatos Darosh Darash. Darosh Darash Moshe. And it's translated in a very enigmatic way because people don't know why we need a double word. Uh, usually the double uh, verb signifies exceedingly, exceedingly. So Darosh Darash Moshe means he really investigated <laughs> an FBI investigation that left nothing, nothing. The Sa'ir Rosh Chodesh, the Sa'ir HaChatas, that he had instructed the Kohanim uh, to participate and to eat off at the Yom Hashmini, the eighth day of the inauguration of uh, the temple, of the Mishkan. On this eighth day, they were hoping that by performing this Chatas, they had done one on every other day of the seven days of the Miluim. Now came the eighth day, Shmini, and they were expecting God's presence now finally to descend because they had inaugurated the Mishkan for seven days. And Shmini on the eighth day, after providing the Kohanim to do the ritual Chatat, then God would appear and everyone would be sighing a sigh of relief that... Somehow, the Chet Egel was now expiated. And so, Moses went to investigate what happened. And then something, he found something upon his investigations. The Hine Soreif. And it had been burnt. Burnt? A chatos? The coin has to participate in a chatos. He has to eat it. That's part of the expiation. And that triggers a rage attack. Vayiktsov doesn't just mean he was angry. He raged. Vayiktsov al Elazar ve el Itamar b'nei Arom with Elazar and Itamar hanotarim. Very poignant words. What does nosar mean? The survivors, the surviving sons, meaning it should have been not of an avir, but we heard that Achrimos, that they died. Achrimos, not of an avir, the sons of Aaron, for bringing strange fire, right, in a, in a, in a state of ecstasy. Hanosorim, now the two surviving sons get the butt and the, the, the rage of, of Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayiksov al Elazar vel Itamar b'nearon. Lema, now we hear why he's angry. Madua lo achaltem et achatat kodesh. Why didn't you eat the sin offering in the holy place? Ki kodesh kodoshim hi. And you were meant to do that to carry the weight of expiation of the sin. 
what is going on. The Torah portion of Shemini relates how Aaron's elder son, Nadav and Avio, were consumed by the heavenly fire, which was unauthorized. And as a result, Aaron's remaining sons, as well as Aaron himself, uh, felt it was improper to eat the sin offering presented at that time, which is also brought every Rosh Chodesh. The Sa'ir Shel Rosh Chodesh happened to be by Yom Ashmini. They did eat the special one-time offerings, Kadshe Olam, but the Kadshe Shah, that particular offering for that particular time, uh, they, they, they just refused. When Moses discovered their abstention, he was very angry because Moshe didn't think there was any difference between the regular and the one-time offerings, whilst Aaron and his sons felt that there was. Two questions. Was there a difference halachically between Kadshe Ola and Kadshe Sha'ah? And number two, why did Aaron and his sons differ in their approach to that halacha from Moshe? And, and the difference between Moshe and Aaron in that respect will reveal a telling difference not only in their halachic approach to the Khatat, but also their personality. And most of the attention of this parsha focuses on this divine fire that comes down to consume Nadav and Aviyu. But then, after that first section in Sheminid, uh, we go back to the normal business of the day, which is the state of the goat that had already been offered for the national sin. What's going on here? Up until now, Aaron has been completely silent by Yidom Aaron. Aaron was silent after the death of Nodavan of you. And Moshe's very ambiguous eulogy, Bikrovai Ekadesh, etc., is followed by Aaron's absent eulogy for his sons by Yidom Aaron. So the act of Aaron speaking here is very, very critical. Very critical. Let's go back to that text. Vayadabe Aaron el Moshe. Hain, hayom hikrivu et chatatam. Yep, you're right. They did offer up their sin offering. Ve'et olatam, and the burnt offering, lifnei Hashem. But I want to tell you something. The reason we didn't eat is, vatikra'ena osi ko'ele. You know what's happened to me. Recently, Ka'ela, these events, the death of my son, the Chatas Hayom, and had I eaten from this Korban Chatos, this Rosh Chodesh Sa'ir, today, Hayitav Beinei Adonai, would it have been proper in the eyes of God for a Kohen who is in the state of Aninus, meaning between the loss of his sons and the burial, he's an Onain. And the halacha is, we learn, Moed Cotton, that he's, um, all the halachas of Aninus, we learn from here, uh, that he cannot officiate as a Kayan. I couldn't participate. Hayitav Be'ne Hashem. And look at the same words. Vayishma Moshe. Vayitav Be'enov. Vayitav, Vayitav. Very, very poignant. So Moshe goes from Vayiktsov, rage, to listening and understanding, 
to actually serenity and pleasure. Yes, I like your interpretation of the halakha. I was not aware of it. And the Medrash says there are five places where Moses gets angry and there are four places where Moshe doesn't know the halacha and has to be told. We won't go into that. But Moshe attacked Aaron on a point of halacha, reminding him the rule that a Kohen has to participate in a chatos. Very nice. Now, that's exactly how the symbolic coherence of the sacrifice works. In his magisterial work on Vayikra, the scholar Jacob Milgram explains, and I quote, that the chatas is better rendered as a purification offering, responding to a situation of impurity caused by sin, unstable health, or what have you. So the Kohen mythically embodies sanctity, Kedusha, while standing for life, while the carcass of the sin offering embodies impurity, which stands for death. So when the priest consumes, digests, participates in the Chatos, he's making a theological statement. Holiness has swallowed impurity. Life must defeat death. And a lot is at stake, therefore, in the proper consumption of the chatos. If it is entirely burnt on the altar like it was just now, should Israel understand that death, chaos and instability are triumphant over life? And this is what causes the rage of Moshe. And Aaron's response is interesting. Aaron's response is, Look, Moshe, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before God when all this ka'ela happened to me. And if I had eaten the sin offering, hayitav be'enei Hashem, would it have been appropriate in God's eyes? Now you should know, Halachically, if we're staking, talking halachically, which I don't feel comfortable usually doing, there are situations where the Torah does stipulate that a chatos should be burnt uh, entirely. Number one, when the Kohen Godel sins, endangering himself and the whole people. Number two, if the entire Klal Yisrael collectively sins in error, the annual sin offering on Yom Kippur to purge the sanctuary on behalf of the entire people is completely burnt. There is no participation of the Kohen or the Kohen Godel. It's in those extreme situations that the Kohen doesn't have the capacity to embody sanctity and life to the degree necessary to overcome that magnitude of rupture and death. If the Kohen Godel sins or the entire people sin, then you don't participate in the Chatos. There only God consume the impurity embodied by the animal and affirm the victory of life over death. So Aaron is correcting Moshe Rabbeinu on a point of Halacha. Let's start from there because that's all the way the Rishonim talk about. It's like a Kohen in the throes of a shocked encounter with death he cannot successfully, in his state of aninus, model the triumph of life over death any more than a Kohen who brought the sin upon the whole people can himself model stability and the order prevailing over the disruption of the sin. And in Moed Cotton, 
we learn many laws governing Aninus and Avelus of this liminal period between death and burial from this very story. They understood, the Chachamim understood that this dialogue was a debate in Halacha. So what led to this dispute? Why did Moshe and Ara see this case in such a different way, reflected in their halachic interpretation? The fact that each one is incredulous at the other, one gets raged with the other, and who doesn't see it his way, suggests to us that the way they difference between them is not just a question of interpretation or a judgment call, but the fundamental framing of the task at hand. So let's look at Darosh Darash. Darash Darosh The repetition is interesting. The Gemara in Kedushin 30 says, states that these two words are the exact middle of the Torah between the words Darosh and Darash. In fact, if you look at Masecha Sofrim and you look at us, if you're leaning from a Sefer Torah, this Darosh is at the bottom of one column and this Darash must be at the top of the next column. And in between is a stitching of the cloth all the way down as if to signify we have reached halfway in the Torah. But that also means that half the words are on one side and half the words are on the other side. And in between the two, Darosh, Doresh, in this investigation of Moshe, lies the fault line of the entire Torah. Not in letters. That's Gichon. That's another thing. But the doubled verb of Moshe's investigation of the sacrifice, the verb that comes to embody Drisha, Medrash, Medrash Halacha, to be Doresh Torah, to take Torah Shebaal Peh and explain Torah Shebichsav, lies at this very fault line. The core practice of rabbinic life, Midrash, the crux of the Torah, is right here in the interaction between Moshe and Aaron. The Torah hinges here on the tension between the clear and emphatic but mistaken perspective of Moshe, the ambiguous and halting but correct response of Aaron, and the acknowledgement by Moshe of Aaron's way. It is a dramatic Midrash uh, Agadah from the Gemara in Kiddushin to tell us that this fault line is the hinge. You know, the Greek alphabet has the middle letter from Alpha to Omega what is the middle letter of the, Hebrew, the Greek alphabet? It is an iota. One dot. One dot is the iota upon which the whole alphabet, the whole of Greek wisdom, hangs and balances like a hinge. So too here, Lahavdil, the dorosh, 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 the emphatic nature of Moshe is fractured in half as if to suggest that there is a space between the Darash and Darash which allows for rabbinic interpretation. Now, let's go deeper. The Torah can be read in different ways. Literally, and we, our whole hermeneutic, yes, uh, is based on the fact that, that there's a literal, allegorical, mythical, mystical way, right? Pshat, Remez, Drush, and Sod, for me, the challenge, my project, uh, is to see in the pshat 
the deepest secrets of Torah, to uncover in the pshat, uh, through the fault lines, uh, through the repetitions, through the midrashic tropes, those deeper aspects of Torah, uh, not just allegorical, but mythical, personal, a personal recovery program, a spiritual manual of discipline, to recover those tropes uh, through going back to the pshat. And so over millennia, we have struggled with making sense of the biblical text. And one of the ways the Masecha Sofrim does is to count the letters and count the words. Early on, scholars attempted to see in the counting the words some kind of codified meaning. I remember as a child, Rochelle will remember this when I got back from yeshiva, uh, that I was called to Letchworth on Rosh Hashanah. And I went with my good friend, Weil, Jeremy Weil, because Rabbi Solomon David Sassoon, who lived in Letchworth, because during the war, everyone was evacuated from, from London, especially the children. Letchworth became one of those places uh, like Sheffield, Letchworth, uh, where the Nazis was out of the range of the V1 bombs. So everyone was, all the kids were evacuated from, uh, from London. So Solomon David Sassoon, after the war, uh, came up from India with his mother. Her name was Victoria, named after Queen Victoria. And he was sh running short of a minion. So Jeremy Weil and I went up to Letchworth for Rosh Hashanah um, to, to participate in this eminent Sephardi scholar, by the way, who owned one of the three extant mem um, manuscripts of the Rambam. And our distant cousin, my father's second cousin, Shisha, was his librarian. He had escaped from Vienna uh, before the war. And I remember him saying then at the Rosh Hashanah table as a 17-year-old, he started counting every nine words from Bracious Borelokim and found that there was an illusion every ninth word with the covenant, with Brit. He was into that. And so here in our Pasha, we find that the Torah has arrived at a halfway mark in the terms of a word count. Another location signifies the halfway mark in terms of the letters, a letter count. So what does this mean in terms of the death of Aaron's sons? Now, Rashi summarized for us the understanding of the issue by the Gemara in Zvachim, quoting the Tanhuma, that it's the underlying halacha of the Onain. And I, I, I went through that. Now, I want to suggest that the word double form of darosh, darash, indicates a special emphasis. An investigation on top of an investigation, as it were. After conveying the command to eat the sacrifices, he initiated a special, intense investigation as to what had happened with the chatos. And yet the Medrash informs us that despite the investigation, Moshe remains uncertain. And so it's so ironic that Darosh Darash, which was such a profound halachic investigation, led him uh, to an uncertain legal ruling that he was unaware of. And as I said, there were three episodes in which Moshe was angered and forgot the law. And that leads the Medrash to say that when you're angry, you shouldn't be paskening. And, and so now we say that that dor, darash, darash, 
is the hinge upon which the whole Torah hinges. And what does that mean? It's a halfway mark between two repetitive words or explications of a narrative halachically. And so it seems to me as no accident that the very investigation by the Moshe as to the halachic ramifications of the Sa'ir HaChatas should cross that very midsection of the Torah in a literal way. It's a very material thing. I've counted, I'm counting words. I come to this hinge and then there is a stitch mark right down the cloth. And I have to cross that stitch mark to get to the second half of Torah. What does that mean? The materiality of a word count. And it's no accident that the ruling escapes him in his anger. Everything appears like a mystery. The death of Aaron's sons is a mystery. The absence of a clear ruling by Moshe is a mystery. The need to repeat the word Darosh twice across the fault line is a mystery. And so, to me, we have to dig deeper into the mythical aspects of what is so unique about this Sa'ir Rosh Chodesh Chatat. And the sacrifice of this particular Korban is unique because it says Chatas Lashem, which could be saying an atonement on behalf of God or an atonement of God. What kind of atonement does God require? Could there possibly be a divine sin that the Kohen Godel has to atone for? Yet the words are clear. Under no other Korban does it say Lashem. But for the Sa'ir Rosh Chodesh, it says Sa'ir Lashem. The Midrash regarding God's sin comes from back in Genesis. And it comes from the creation of the two great luminaries. God made the two great lights, the great light for the ruling of the day. And then the Posuk says the small light for the ruling of the night, obviously the moon. Wait a minute, you just said God made two great lights. So it should be a great light at day and a great light at night. But it doesn't. It says a small light. And so the puzzlement from Medrash Rabbo comes from the sudden switch in adjectives modifying light. And the Pirkei Rebeleza enlightens us. Rab Shimon ben Pazi, quoted in Gemara Chulin 60, there's a contradiction between the verses. God made two great lights and then it says the lesser light. The moon says to God, sovereign of the universe, can two kings wear one crown? In our shul, we've heard that many times from the Rod. Shnei malochim bekesa echad. How is it possible? Meaning, the moon is asking a, a, a shaila in physics, right? I asked Alan yesterday, and he says, no, there could be stars, which uh, planets that have two stars of equal light. Okay, okay. But from our cosmological limited perspective, um, the moon is asking a Shiloh. I mean, what do you need two lights in the sky for? You don't need two lights during the day. You only need one sun. Okay, so God says, go and make yourself smaller and I'll put you at night. And so the moon complains. What did I do wrong? Because I suggested that which is proper 
Must I have to suffer, be made small and shoved at night time? So God says, don't worry, I'm going to give you a consolation prize. By you, by the moon, Am Yisrael will reckon all the days and the years. And then the moon said, but that's not possible because Pesach has to occur in the Chodesh Oviv in the springtime and that requires the sun. So God says, okay, but then all the greatest tzaddikim will be also called Hakoton. Samuel the small, David the small. <laughs> He's trying to console the moon. It's such a beautiful anthropomorphic story. And then he says, on seeing that it would not be consoled, God then says to the moon, okay, it's too late. I've already created the world. It's too late. I can't go back on my creation. So you know what? I'll, I'll tell you, this is what we'll do every month when it comes to your Rosh Chodesh. You're going to bring a carbon chattas for me because I diminished you. And that's why it says Chatos Lashem, according to Reish Lokish and Reb Shimon ben Pazi. Because the Holy One, blessed be, said, Kavyochel, as if you could say this about the God, let this he-goat be atoning for me, ki because I made the moon smaller. The moon's seemingly innocent question provokes God's strong over-response. Okay, okay, you don't like it? Make yourself smaller. Recognizing the undue severity of the response, God now attempts to soften the initial reply, but nothing consoles the moon. And in this remarkable drush, God repents for his insensitive rebuke. The Talmud employs this verse to justify why the he-goat sacrifice, the schatos, Lashem, is offered at the time of the new moon and is the only festive sacrifice which includes the phrase carbon chatos lashem, for it's God's own atonement for this harsh action. Absolutely dazzling medrash, but what's that got to do with us? And how is it possible to say that Hashem needs atonement? And believe me, the Rishonim jump right in to protect God's reputation. The riff on that daf says that chatos comes to atone for Am Yisrael, not God. But the reason Hashem instituted that it be brought on Rosh Chodesh is to honor the moon and appease it. Uh, the Tosfus Rosh explains that the Torah is teaching us proper behavior, that if you're forced to punish another person, even though it's justified, you need to appease him afterwards. So we're imitating God. But the Medrash seems to assert that God can sin. And this is what interests me and why I love that Medrash. And I would like to suggest that it comes right here in that fault line, in that stitch between the first and the second half of the Torah, in the space between the two halves of Torah. He did deed sin by reacting to the moon's criticism about the light's inequality. He sinned at a critical moment during the process of creating of the universe. His sin is an irreversible sin. He can't take it back. And it changed the face of reality, for the reality of two equal lights is not the reality of two unequal lights. Because of his admission of his sin, every month we bring a chatos on his behalf. If such be the case, we have before us 
another stratum of divine Midos, which is brought by the Leshem in the famous Talmud uh, of Kabbalah of the Gro in the 20th century, who says that that floor is one of the Midos that's built into creation. The diminished moon represents the cosmic dark side of the world and the forces of evil allowed to run free. God is not only great and powerful and awesome and good and forgiving and father of mercies. In Kabbalah, he's also a God who sins and owns up to his sin. He errs and acknowledges his error. A God who sins, a God who errs, who knows the feeling of error and sin and compunction is a different kind of God. A communicative with man, maybe even arousing empathy in man. Man, at whose gate, even at his core, is addicted, full of sin and error, fights them sometimes successfully, like me, most times unsuccessfully. And maybe there is some kind of what's happening down here is happening upstairs. Likewise, my father-in-law of blessed memory suggests that this medrash provides human beings created in the divine image. It's another example how to imitate the divine by fully owning up to a mistake and making restitution. But I take it slightly darker than that. The mystical interpretive strand picks up on this daring medrash and finds a cosmic flaw in the very fabric of creation, a flaw that's holographically mirrored in me and allows for human freedom and the possibility of evil. And the Leshem was the first to expose that cosmic flaw in this particular narrative, exploring the very reason and question as to how the divine would require the moon's diminution and the holographic incarnation of his flaw into every aspect of injustice in life, he radically moves the interpretation to include the very origin of evil and suffering. And that, for me, is a healing text. It allows me to stay from, it allows me to stay within the tradition, with all my kashas and shilas of the 20th century. I want to suggest that in the implications mystically felt in the sources for the diminution of the moon, which is just a nice sweet medrash, and the midrashic trope of divine bringing a sacrifice for a guilt offering is linked to our very split halfway marker point in the Torah. It appears that the very division of the Torah into two halves with the space between two identical words, darosh, invites us to interpret not just Moshe's halachic investigations, but our existential investigations into life and ourselves and our dark side and the genocidal impulse in this world, all bearing down both in halacha, medrash, agadah and kabbalah, all bearing down on this pericope. It goes to the very heart of Jewish theology and theodicy. The space between the two words darosh, darash, allows for the space between the investigative activities of Moshe as to the meaning of the sin offering 
and allows for the introduction of the notion of divine guilt into this crack, in this tiny space between the two halves of the Torah, as if the very materiality of the written word split between the stitch marks of that fractured cloth, the document, the scroll given by the divine is hinged at this very flaw of creation. The central crack in the Torah becomes materially the central crack in creation. The space between the two identical words allows for the secret behind the permission for evil to exist. For the mystery of the diminution of the moon, which is Knesset Yisrael, which is the Shechina, as all equivalent. The split between the sun and the moon, between perfection and imperfection, the divine and the human. In this space between Darosh Darash, we humans, we sinners live. We're given a model for divine sinning, Kavyochel and divine restitution so that we can experience the betrayal and the forgiveness and the korban chatas, the restitution after the sin. In this space we breathe easier. In this space where the Torah literally hinges on itself, on its drosha, on its very own interpretation. We are invited by the Torah itself. Come in. Come in and interpret. Interpret your Torah, your life, your biography, your injustices, your traumatic past, your PTSD, your addictions. Like Moshe Rabbeinu, our lives hinge on our drasha, our ability to interpret our stories, our narratives, our interpretive strategies. Do we take our lives literally? Do we try to interpret them? The differences between the first Darosh and the second Darosh is the space in between them. That space, our lives, that absence, the white fire on black fire, the silence of our screams makes the crucial difference upon which hangs all of the Torah. And in this pregnant silence, we find ourselves screaming as bearers of the worst flaw in creation, that of man's inhumanity to man, the parallel of which has never taken place until the last century of genocide and divine silence. In the space between Darosh and Darash, in that hinge upon which the Torah is suspended, that iota upon which lies the very balance of its two halves, in the screaming and begging for interpretation, we too seek a meaning and response. It is as if Torah itself is split by the very guilt and flaw built into the creation itself. The Torah as a blueprint of creation mirrors that very flaw. The Torah is pointing us to need, the need for us to make the hermeneutical move of interpretation at precisely the point at which the Torah is fractured in half, the point at which even the Torah remains silent and invites us in that stitching to complete the gap in its understanding. In this space we are invited, the silence of the absent divine, in the screaming presence of its absence, to force ourselves to confront the vacated space of silence. We too are confounded by the loss 
like Aaron, behold, this day they have offered me their sin offering and their burnt offering. And Ka'ele, Ka'ele, this is what's befallen us. This is what's befallen us as Klal Yisrael in the last century, such and such as these. And we too cannot officiate in the aftermath of such deadly silence. We too cannot pray and perform the rituals as if nothing had happened. And we too need a Moshe, a Melech, a, a Mashiach to affirm and validate Vayitav Be'enei Moshe. Not only was he assuaged from his rage, but it was pleasing. The drush pleased him. Vayishma, he integrated it, he understood it. Vayitav Be'enei, and it seemed appropriate. Have a wonderful week, my good friends.